Men, please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. I have the insert for you there, but have your Bibles open, ready, or your electronic device, whatever you have to look at the Scripture today. Just look at this passage with me. We are at the end of chapter 9. The book of Acts was written primarily to give an historic, authoritative history of the founding of the church post-Christ's resurrection and ascension. I want to be careful to say it's not the beginning of the church. Uh, The church, the called out ones of God, began when God started calling people to himself long before Christ uh, actually came in the flesh. Uh, Israel was the church before, and then the church through the Abrahamic covenant expands to all tribes and tongues after Jesus rises, ascends, and sends a spirit so that his disciples could be his witnesses and then the church expands. But the book of Acts is the, the founding of this post-ascension church that means to fill the earth. And that's what we see starting in this book. This is a foundational book with unique events that are particular to the times, the times of the apostles. Really the fulfillment of the prophets. Now with Christ, in hindsight, they're able to give clarity to the full of the scriptures. And the book of Acts is a wonderful description of Jesus' continuing ministry through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's review our trek through Acts so far. We are in chapter 9. In Acts 1, the ascension of Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, the Spirit of God comes and fills the disciples to be Christ's witness. In Acts 2, Peter gives one of several powerful sermons, bridging the Old Testament saints together with now the New Testament era through the Spirit. In Acts 3, Peter and John heal the lame beggar, which leads into the preaching of the gospel. They follow the ministry of Christ, doing these works of mercy and compassion as an avenue, as an intro to giving the gospel, the message of reconciliation with God through Christ and his finished work. In Acts 4, Peter and John are called before the council, and we see the first real Christian persecution. Acts 4 also shows a great unity in the early church, and that goes until Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira threaten that unity. Acts 5 also has the apostles arrested and beaten now. Um, Persecution is ramping up for Christians. But the signs and the wonders continue as God founds his church. It starts to explode from this point. It wasn't a movement of man. It was clearly the movement of Christ through people. Acts 6 shows this exploding church and the need for a new office, the office or the function of the deacons. Acts 6 ends with one of the deacons, Stephen, preaching the gospel and being arrested in chapter 7. He gives an epic speech and then he is executed at the hands of Jewish religious leaders. Persecution reaching a high point now is a, a few verses alert us to Saul of Tarsus, who takes it upon himself to ravage the church, to lead the charge against Christians, elevating persecution um, even further. In chapter 8, Philip preaches in Samaria, showing the gospel now spreading out from Jerusalem into wider Judea and now Samaria that climactic meeting between him and the Ethiopian eunuch, a high official of Candace, a queen in Africa, taking the gospel back with him, no doubt, to the south. 
Then Acts 9. All of this has been mostly Peter, you notice. Or Peter is a central figure. But then Acts 9, we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus on his way to becoming Paul as he's converted on the road to Damascus. That whole of chapter 9 is about Paul. But then there's a a bridge of 8 to 10 years that happen between the time he is converted and the time we see him in full ministry in Acts 13. Now we're back to Peter for a brief moment to see the fullness of the founding of the church through the apostles. This passage before us contains two miracles. Ask yourself why these miracles as we go forward through the passage together. Here as I read now God's word, Acts 9, starting at verse 32, I'll read to verse 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are so very grateful for your holy word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We learn so much every time we read and study. As we study this short section in chapter 9, Please give us perspective to appreciate uh, the people transformed by what they experienced that day for sure, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, but also through the ministry of your Spirit, give us a greater picture of your work of founding your church, your work of redemption as you build your church, of which we are part today. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. Having lived in uh, Chicago in the city for four years, right downtown, I got to watch several high-rises go up. And by high-rise, I'm talking 40 stories or more. And Chicago is loaded with skyscrapers of 60 stories and more. Um, Kansas City has an impressive cityscape for a Midwest city for sure, but its tallest building is one Kansas City place at 42 stories. Now, the Sheridan is 45 stories, but it's not actually as tall is one Kansas City place. In Chicago and some of the bigger cities in the country, they have multiple these size buildings, and those would be small buildings there. 
Chicago has 10 buildings over 70 stories, two over 100. The Grant Thornton Building was built during my time in college, and I remember when they started to announce its building, and then they started digging the pit that the foundation would go into. That building was over 50 stories in its plans. And I remember it taking six months to get all the equipment, the particular unique equipment to build something in a city that was already developed. They had to mow down a building, then dig out a massive, massive crater, it looked like, to then build the foundation. And this is for only a 50-story building. Six months just to build our, to dig out this huge crater and start laying the, the foundation work for the building. Another six months for that foundation to rise up out to where you could see, you know, what would the building look like a bit from the basis of the foundation. I mean, almost a year of a two-year construction project just devoted to the foundation that would be built. And it needed to be this way. It was special. It was important. It was a unique period in the life of the building's construction and in the life of the building because it meant that the strength of the building above would be directly connected to what was below. I mean, even when this building was built, I remember how long it took to do the lower level and get it ready to support everything above us. And we're all happy that engineers and construction people know what they're doing to build this heavy of a building on this floor that we're all sitting on, and we trust it. Foundations are important. They're essential. They're unique in what they provide. And that is the book of Acts. It's the foundation of the church that you and I are part of today, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the chief cornerstone is Christ. In fact, this is exactly what Paul, 20 years after this story, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, to Christians like you and I, he says this, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The many um, blessings we enjoy in the church come from this founding period we're studying in the book of Acts. Now, all the aspects of the book of Acts are not timeless in how they carry out. They're descriptive of God building that foundation. But many of the principles there help us understand how God works, things he would have us to do, especially as church leaders. When we look at the apostles and their priorities, we consider how that would translate today. Now we come to the story before us, Peter, the apostle, doing two particular miracles. We ask ourselves, why these particular miracles? Many signs and wonders were done. Why these? I believe that what we'll have before us is a clear example of the connection between the apostles and the one who commissioned them, Jesus himself. This is important because the foundation of the church, though it be the apostles, the cornerstone is Christ. And the apostles are Jesus' messenger. So no one ought to think that these human beings, these apostles, just caught onto a good idea and built up a big church or a big organization or a big institution on the basis of their genius or their ability to start a movement. It's clear through this passage, it is the work of Christ through his apostles. And these two miracles manifest this supremely. Christ's ministry done through the apostles ultimately authenticates and illustrates the salvation message they're given, and it builds the church. That's what we have, an authenticating ministry in founding the church, which gives us today great confidence in the timelessness of the church. It also gives us pause so that we might praise God for what he's doing. 
And he gives us examples along the way about how the church should relate. First, let's notice something on that line about how the leaders of the church relate early in those days. I think it's informative for us. Notice something about the practice of, of Peter in this instance, but the apostles as a whole. Um, the early establishment of Christ's church was so important that the apostles traveled around the places they appointed elders as time went on. But in the earliest days, like right here, they just went to the new churches to check on those who were Christians, to see how they were growing, to encourage them, make corrections if need be. They gave a personal touch. Peter carries this out as he visits the saints. Notice verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda, at Lydda. Now, here and there among them, it's an important, he's able to move around now outside of Jerusalem. Now that Saul of Tarsus is converted, there's not the same effort to persecute Christians. At least we gather that. There's a freedom of movement. And Peter takes it upon himself to go check on other Christians. So he moves around and does this. And he came also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now Lydda and Sharon and Joppa, all mentioned here, these are towns or cities that are west of Jerusalem. If you could picture your map of Israel, Jerusalem being down in the the bottom southern half of it, to the direct west are Joppa and Lydda. These are places that were like seaport towns, 12 miles apart from each other. Though in the bounds of Israel, most of the inhabitants were not Jewish. So here's Peter going outside of Jerusalem to a predominantly non-Jewish audience to, bring, to check up on how the saints are doing and to bring further message of the gospel. The gospel itself checked upon by Peter among people who are not predominantly Jewish. This is showing a spread now that really starts to take momentum in the book of Acts. Peter shows this in his trip here in his personal touch. Notice also it says he came to the saints, and we see this designation a few times in the text, to the saints. You know, there are multiple differences we have with the Roman Catholic Church. One is how they view Peter. We think Peter's important. He's one of the apostles. We don't think he's uh, the vicar of Christ, if you will, or is his seat. Um, The other issue is the, the use of the term or the descriptive saint. Um, In the Bible, saint is used to describe those who are in Christ. In this sense, Christians are saints. It's not uh, observing some great effort or some great accomplishment a Christian makes and then us getting together or somebody getting together and voting to give them the title saint. By the way, there's nothing wrong with honoring God through the memory of people that God has used in special ways. But saint is a designation that's carefully given to those who are in Christ. And it means holy ones, the hagias of God, the saints of God. And you might say, like I say, well, I'm not a saint. Um, No, I'm not in the sense of my own holiness, but in Christ I and you are. Because when God looks at a Christian, one who rests in Christ, he doesn't see you in your fallenness and your sins. He sees the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus credited to you legally Because you trust in Christ. You trust in Christ and his finished work that he takes away your sins and gives you his righteousness. This is why Christians might be called the saints. And this is what Peter refers to. Probably not a full established church at this point. He came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. The point is, he makes a personal visit, a personal ministry touch, if you will. Later, he leaves Lydda to go to Joppa. Verse 36, notice how it's described. 
Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. This is a woman who was well-known for her compassion, well-known for her care for the saints. She was an important person in the church, and people were greatly grieving her loss. It seems abrupt, uh, not expected. And so she, is, she has died, and they are sad, and they want comfort. There's no indication they were necessarily expecting Peter would raise her from the dead. That's not highly precedented. Only Jesus did that before Peter did. And so here, they want his comfort and his presence. So he travels where he knows more Christians are in Joppa, and he spends time there um, in the household in the circle of friends of Tabitha. Notice verse 43. And we'll go through the content of the sermon or the miracle in a moment. But for now, just see this personal visit, this touch that Peter in the early church demonstrates in the life of the saints. Verse 43. After this, he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Many things can be said here. It's only one verse. But he stays there in Joppa. It's not Jerusalem. He's there where there are not many Christians yet, but more and more Christians come to be. Many days, we read that earlier about Paul staying in Damascus. That ended up being a few years. We don't have indication Peter stayed there that long, but it could be more than just a few days. And then he stays with Simon, who's a tanner. Now, for Jews, the, the occupation of tanning was a filthy one and even an irreligious one, dealing with dead animals, skinning them, and then tanning their hides. It probably didn't smell the greatest in Simon's house either, just guessing. And here's Peter staying with Simon. I mean, a full display of his pastoral care, if you will, for the saints where he visits. Now, let's continue and look at the miracles themselves. Why would Luke include these two of all the miracles of Peter? Why these two? They're, these miracles uh, put to writing for purpose. And it seems that he picks these miracles as a way of showing Peter's endorsement by Christ. They, they so closely model the ministry of Jesus. Verse 33. There he found a man named Ananias bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ, notice that please, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This poor man, Ananias, was paralyzed, could not move. For eight years he laid in that bed. No rehab opportunities, no research projects at a university to help his situation, no assisted living, no job for him. All the difficulties, the heavy weight of his burden, the challenges that come with this, the depression, the, the, the simple hygiene challenges he could not meet, social restrictions. So heavy was his situation, especially in the first century. Totally hopeless and helpless, no doubt. Peter comes to him and acts as Christ's agent of healing. He says, Ananias, or Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Why this miracle, though? It's, it's an amazing thing. And personally, we can only imagine the joy of Ananias and those who love him. But when you start to study the, the, the miracles of Jesus, you recognize a close parallel here with something that happens in Mark 2. Listen to this story you may be familiar with and think of it in relationship to what we just read. And they came bringing him a paralytic. 
carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they laid down the bed through in which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Imagine, perhaps, people watching Peter do this miracle with Ananias. Think back, never had they seen anything. We've seen this before, what Peter did, what Peter said even. Almost a very similar situation. And yet Peter is now doing it in the name of Jesus. In fact, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. So it's not Peter doing this miraculous work. It's Jesus, that Jesus, who did those miracles we know of. There's another miracle that connects also with this, perhaps, in John 5. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethsaida. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man said, Yes, but I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred. Why am I going? While I'm going down, others, others come up in front of me. And Jesus said, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Luke records this miracle as a means of casting Peter and the apostles in the proper authoritative light in the founding of the church. Jesus is still ministering. He's just doing it through the apostles now to found and expand the church. Peter could do what Christ did because Christ is actively working through him. Peter was demonstrating Christ-like power and authority with his very similar miracles to Jesus. Now, as a humorous side point, as I was sharing this with Sherry this week, you would imagine, I wonder how many of you know why this would be Sherry's favorite miracle. Anyone know? And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, in fairness, when Sherry started teaching at at Heritage, she gets up a half hour earlier, so I am assigned making the bed. And I make the bed every week. However, she comes home and remakes it because it's not done well enough before we can sleep in it. Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. You know, um, The bottom line of this miracle, though, is the same reason Jesus did the miracle. People drew their attention to God and gave him glory for what he did. People did not draw their attention to Peter and say, praise Peter. They turned to Christ. Not just this miracle, though. There's more. Notice in verse 36, there's a second miracle recorded here. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, or Tabitha is the way it would have been said in Aramaic, but we say it as Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now, if you had a choice between Tabitha and Dorcas, nowadays you'd pick Tabitha too, I think. She was full of good works and acts of charity. This is an important woman in the church. She brought much encouragement and care to the saints and um, also, no doubt, charity outside the community. It's not a well-developed church at this point, so she's known for her compassion and care. She's important. She gives witness to the church, and the people feel it. When she dies, it says in verse 37, and as I'm reading, think of stories that Jesus, about Jesus' miracles that relate. In those days, she became ill and died, 
And when they had washed her, they laid her in, the upper, in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Does that remind you of something? So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, she said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. You know, I wonder, what were they expecting Peter to do? I'd rather think they just knew of Peter's spiritual importance and leadership and thought he would at least be able to give them strength. I don't think we should assume they thought he was going to raise her. After all, they're only five what I'll call resuscitations. I mean, a resurrection is what Jesus had, and he's still alive. Um, Every other uh, raising of a dead person, the person died again. So we'll call them uh, resuscitations. Um, And in this case, we have, of course, Jesus raising Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. Later, Paul raises Eutychus. But this would be unprecedented to ask Peter to raise somebody from the dead. The miracle, though, sounds a lot like the miracle with Lazarus. In Acts 9, listen again what it says, our passage, verse 37. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Lydda was near Joppa. The disciples, hearing that Peter was there near, sent two men, urging, please come without delay. Now listen to John 11. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's some parallel in the delay of coming. In the case of Peter, she was already dead. In the case of Jesus, he would be dead when he arrived. But you know, this miracle also parallels another miracle of Jesus when Jesus healed the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus. Jairus. Listen to what the passage before us says again in Acts 9, verse 39. Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter put them outside, knelt down and prayed, turned to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. She saw Peter. She sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now listen to what happens with Jesus and Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. See, there's a, a, a level of confidence Jesus speaks with that Peter doesn't have, but the parallels are still there. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, brief, interesting side point. Tabitha arise in Aramaic would be Tabitha kumi or Tabitha kum. What Jesus says to this girl sounds a lot like it. Talitha, Talitha kumi. So if you're hearing this and seeing this, you know the story of Jesus raising uh, Jairus' daughter, and now you see Peter, almost the same words, 
speak this miracle into happening. There is a a unity that comes immediately into the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, how he commissioned the church to be founded and built, and now it's being played out in Peter. Peter is doing this. Immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. The same result, the glorifying of Christ through it. Peter did these two miracles, both as an agent of Christ. Jesus Christ heals you. He prays before he heals Tabitha. Peter is a true apostle. That's the message. At this foundational level of the church, this is important for all to see. He is especially enabled to perform Christ-like miracles. Prophets were proven in the Old Testament by their predictions coming true and doing amazing signs. Apostles were proven in the New Testament by similar means. Luke wanted Peter's apostleship to be unquestionable in this foundation of the church. And by the way, this is the same Peter who was a bumbling, fumbling, hot-tempered, quick-speaking, violent, cowardly person. Now he's an apostle. If you doubt it, just look at the miracles that he did in the passage before us and then the whole of the Bible. The glory of Christ is manifested through this miracle and especially using Peter. Peter is one of the most encouraging figures in Scripture for me and probably for most of us. We're going to read, we've read a lot about Peter already in the book of Acts. We're going to read a lot about the Apostle Paul. We'd like to be Paul, but most of us relate more with Peter. But the beauty is God takes Peter and makes him an apostle and makes him foundational in the church. Now, there's not the need for apostles any longer, but God constantly will take people that are completely broken, completely messed up, like us, and make us his mouthpieces. Make us to have compassion where we would not have it, words to speak where we would not have them. And he does this over and over again. Peter's a great example of this, not just here, but elsewhere. You know, the apostles were there for a unique period of time. It was unique. Um, he was, they were called to do this work in a special epic of foundation building. The ministry of the apostles, while unique, though, does give general examples to the church about its purpose as Christ's body on earth. Through the ministry of the apostles, and even this episode, people hear the message of the gospel clearly proclaimed. The message being that Christ came to die for our sins. He rose again, defeating death, showing he is our Savior. Trust in Christ and his work. That message, that's, that's the gospel. They hear that. But then they see people who are transformed by the gospel show an unusual compassion to those around them, those in the church, those outside the church when they have opportunity. They're able to show mercy. This comes from us recognizing spiritual mercy from God. So they hear the message, then they see a transformation in the way the people act, Christians, and they believe. They believe the message. That's commonly how God brings people to Christ. They know what the gospel is, but when they see people acting in accordance with their profession, that together God uses to bring them to saving faith. And this is what happens in these instances. You see these incredible miracles happen and then the results. Peter visited Lydda, manifested the presence of Christ, healing Ananias. And look what it says in verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Probably a description of a massive movement, not that every individual necessarily in Lydda and Sharon came to Christ. 
But all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. They didn't turn to Peter. They turned to the Lord. They recognized exactly what he was there to do, authenticate the mission and ministry of Christ through his spirit, through these acts. They knew the gospel. They heard it. Then they saw the acts that he performed, and then they believed. Verse 42, the characterizing verse for the episode with Tabitha. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many many believed in the Lord. So the healing of Tabitha, or I should say the resuscitation of Tabitha, brought about fame for Christ's name. They believed in the Lord, not in Peter. The apostles were proven to be Christ's representatives. People saw them in their actions, listened to the message of Christ, and they believed. The apostles are the foundation for the church. There's much of an example there for us. Now you say, well, we don't do miracles like this. Well, they didn't do miracles that much in apostolic times either. We read of them in the scriptures. But remember what happened when Timothy, Paul's young cohort, pastor at Ephesus, was having trouble. He was having sickness trouble. Paul didn't say, be healed, Timothy. He said, drink some wine. That's what he tells him. Drink a little wine for your stomach, Timothy. Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. Many people think it was probably physical of some sort. Even if it was spiritual, he couldn't heal himself. They didn't go around healing everybody. It was a unique period in time. But the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ, the chief cornerstone. The church is Christ's body. As the church is faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel and accompanying that, it's not the gospel, but accompanying that, authenticating we've been changed by the gospel, we reach out in compassion in our midst and do what we can outside. People suffer all over. That's the nature of this fallen world. And to the degree we can show compassion, it demonstrates mercy that we recognize as ultimately and eternally to be found through Christ. But by extending a hand of mercy to people, we can then bring authenticity to the gospel message we proclaim, and people come to believe. God does this often. This is often how he brings them to know the gospel is by the loving compassion that people who have been saved by the gospel show. So the church, Christ's body, that's how we ought to be, proclaiming the message, loving people, showing mercy where we can, and engrafting people as they come to trust in Christ. This is a bit of the picture that we see on display in the early church. It's really the model Christ followed, and it makes good sense that we would see this as timeless. People hear what we say. We have to be clear about it. The gospel is a declaration. It's a message. The gospel's not showing mercy. Mercy is a result of people who know the gospel. People hear what we say. People see what we do. People believe on Christ. James Boyce was describing this period of time, just the explosion of the, of the gospel in this early epoch in the life of the church. Why is this happening, he says. It was because the gospel spreads. It's like perfume. If you take the stopper out of a perfume bottle, the odor of the perfume soon spreads throughout the room. You can't stop it. The gospel is the sweet smell of true doctrine. A gospel centered in a gracious, loving God who sent his son to die for our salvation And a message like that just can't be bottled up. Once again, the words of Paul, as he writes to Christians several years later, Christians like us, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word. This inspired an inerrant record of the establishment of your church to the ongoing ministry of Christ by your Spirit. Please deepen our appreciation and trust in your word and in your hand of providence, bringing your promises to pass. Please give us a sense of identity that is wrapped up in Christ, that we, your church, your saints, may see ourselves as Christ's body on earth, that we might be faithful in proclaiming the gospel clearly, that we might be faithful in showing mercy and extending help to those who suffer, all for the purpose of your name being glorified as people come believing in Christ. Lord, that many would believe in you through the witness of your church until Christ comes again. That is our desire. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.